Tēnā koto katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lento Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. Tēnē kamihi ke te mana whenua o Aotearoa. And we acknowledge the local tribal authorities of New Zealand. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Durrambul country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. Finally, if you enjoy this potty, please subscribe, like, share or comment on our social media and consider buying us a coffee if you'd like to help support our work. Now on with the show. Welcome back. A brand new year, a brand new season, number five. I'm not so sure we uh, ever expected our podcast journey to go this long, but finishing off last year celebrating just over 50,000 downloads, we're still very much motivated to bring you more inspiring stories and important lessons about our planet and our health. So kicking off this season, I'm personally very excited to finally pin him down for this chat. Uh, We met back in late August 2023 in Chamonix, France, at the Elevate Earth Racing for Resilience in the lead-up to UTMB. This featured phenomenal runners and activists in their own right, Emily Forsberg and Dakota Jones, Hugh James, uh, Athlete Climate Academy host, and of course today's guest, Max Romy. Max is an amazing artist, filmmaker, trail runner and master storyteller communicating environmental concerns so effectively through visual mediums. We're really looking forward to chatting with Max about his past work, as well as his upcoming film, Footprints on Katmai. So let's get into it. Max, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Hello, and thanks so much for for dealing with the non-Kiwi, as I'm sure I gave away instantly. So if you'll take (laughs) me, I'm happy happy to be here. Fully embracing you, Max. Now, uh, you are definitely a first. Anchorage, I believe, is where you are currently, well, that's where you live in Alaska. Uh, what's it like right now? Uh, complete opposite ends of the, of the, of the planet. Um, a little bit wintry at the moment. Yeah, we got uh, a couple feet of snow recently. I'm trying to think what that is in meters or centimeters. It's a bunch. Like, you know, approximately a koala bear high of snow, which I know that's, you know, a different <laughs> continent, but I don't know. I don't know uh, any, any good New Zealand birds aside from like an auk or something like that. And those are like two or three meters high. So somewhere in between that and nothing, that and a kiwi. Fourth of <laughs> now, <laughs> but, uh, now uh, to kick off uh, the chat today, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, as Emma uh, mentioned, uh, definitely a phenomenal artist, storyteller. Tell us about your journey and, and how you found yourself in that space. I mean, it feels kind of crazy to have somebody say it like that. Cause to me, it's, I've just always been painting and like always been sketching. Um, I grew up with dyslexia and so reading and writing have always been very tough for me. Um, especially in school when you're trying to like put your heart out on a page and you know, you write some story and all they see is just all the things that you did wrong. And you just get this like red line, absolutely crossed out essay. And so for me, my grandmother got me into sketching and painting and that is kind of where I found my voice. And that's been with me through everything, through filmmaking, through running, through kind of traveling. And now just like all the good stories or paths, it's all just coming back together to meet up once more. And it's really, really wild to see where it's going. Let's talk about your grandmother a little bit, because as you said, she's a big inspiration to you. And she was quite the artist and globetrotter herself. You've got a beautiful little video on YouTube. Talk to us about your journey of going through over 6,000 of your grandmother's sketches in the process of wanting to retrace her steps. 
Well, yeah, my grandmother was one of these like, you know how grandparents are? They're just kind of familiar. It's like, oh yeah, my grandparents do this. You know, they're they're these fixtures in your life, and and my grandma was always that. She's this amazing artist who it was always wonderful to be able to go through her sketches, and she's really a lot, the one who got me into painting. She would always put a pencil in my hand, blank sketchbook, and I just kind of follow her around and sketch where she sketched, and. Uh, later did i kind of realize the full breadth of of what she did and she traveled everywhere my grandfather's geologist they they went everywhere from auckland to anchorage they lived in massachusetts but they traveled to iceland to um ukraine chile antarctica i mean they 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 went everywhere and she always had her sketchbook with her and so she died i think 10 years ago um or so and left behind just just shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of sketchbooks and only recently was able to go through a lot of those and it's just it's incredible it's a lifetime of sketches and uh and so six thousand approximately from everywhere and as a painter myself the the idea of just seeing this language it was like one of those essays but without the red lines you know i i knew this language i knew how to spell i knew how to spell a sketch and just seeing her marks gave this idea about what if you went back to the same place where she was 30, 40, 50 years ago and sketched the same thing with the same materials from the same place? Like, what would you see? What would change? And so the first time we tried this was in, um, I tried once in Alaska. Alaska is like 50-50. You know, maybe you'll get there and do the right thing, but it has the final say, and it's usually with weather or bears or something. It'll shut you down if it wants to. Uh, but eventually got back uh, in France, and I brought one of her sketchbooks where she had sketched in Chamonix, and I was able to find the exact place where she stood 34 years ago, I think it was, and I was able to sketch the same things in the same place, and it was just, it was like she was there yesterday. It was the wildest, the wildest experience Um one changed a lot one changed hardly at all and that was only four sketches and so there's still 5996 to go i suppose but it just it's such a wild way to see the world change through through two generations in one page now you talk about being able to to capture change we have in the past interviewed a, a couple of um other guests that that also express I guess, environmental and, and climate-related uh, stories through art um, because a lot, a lot about science is all about numbers, statistics, uh, papers, you know, publishing papers, etc. But a visual representation of something appeals to a whole different audience and tells, you know, this, this old saying of a picture tells a thousand words. You know, a, an image can say so much. So just with those few that you have done, and I know you've you've spoken quite a bit about that particular spot in, in Chamonix with the retreating glacier and so on, how important are you finding being able to express climate change through artwork? That's a, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I can't stand climate reporting. I, <laughs> I change the channel so fast whenever I hear this stuff come on because it just gets me down. I, I live in Alaska. I mean, we know the changes. The stuff is going to happen in the Arctic fast, and it's it's going on right now. And every time there's just another article on climate change or ocean plastics or something like that, it is just a it is a hard pass because I'd much prefer to watch a rom com or something like that, which gets me a little happier. But art 
I think it puts this sort of layer over it that makes it palatable. And so when I hear the numbers and the stats and just the, the, the horror of it, it's, it's totally un, unhandleable by me. But if you can make it art, all of a sudden you can see it. It's like, um, it's like looking at the sun, you know? You can't just stare at the sun. I guess you can, but it's a terrible idea. It's going to burn out your eyes real fast. But if you can put glasses or reflection or something, you know, you can see the sun through all these other things like rainbows or sun dogs or reflections or everything else is just a way to see the sun without staring directly at it. And that's kind of what climate change feels like to me is when I stare right at it, you know, it's just pain. But when you can see it through art, when you can see it through stories, when you can see it through change and, and everything that means, then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's not quite as scary it's not quite as overwhelming. Um, and sometimes it can even be beautiful seeing what people are doing in response. So that's, that's been an exciting thing to realize that now comes the exciting and absolutely overwhelming part of like, what are you going to do about that? Because uh, there's a million ways that things are going to change. And there's a million ways that, that, uh, that we can share that story, which is so important. And I think sometimes when you're just sitting there and reading scientific papers on the climate problems and the environmental problems or if you're just listening to it being read out on the news it can kind of seem very black and white and I suppose we can also like it can be overwhelming and and horrible but you can also kind of detach yourself from the issues a little bit if you choose to and I think what's so great with the visual medium is like you're able to kind of dive into the nuances and the shades of grey and like you do this so well you actually tell the story and take people on the journey with you. Um, so what do you feel are some of the important considerations when visually communicating these kinds of things? Because really, you, you deliver a masterclass in doing it. Oh, man. Yeah, keep this praise going. Holy cow, my head is just going to swell. But, but you're right. I mean, it is in the it is in the shades of gray and the shades of blue and red and green and all of that uh, at some level. So the visual kind of considerations, I would say, are in large part, who's who's going to listen? It's really easy to to kind of go for the the disaster, what seems the hottest right now. But in a lot of ways, I think that the most important stories are the ones that seem the most boring to us because they're so close that you almost can't focus on them. You know, it's like when something's so close to your eye, you just can't focus. And that's kind of home. So for me, I, I traveled all over the world. I filmed with um, some shoe companies. I traveled constantly and saw some incredible places, but it took me traveling around the world to realize there's nowhere like home in Alaska. I mean, I just, I started seeing Alaska in everywhere else. I'd be in Scotland and think of Kodiak, which is in Alaska. Just Scotland's kind of like Kodiak, but without bears. And I would see, you know, all of these places, this is great, but this isn't home. And at home, you have this perspective of, you know, a place and you can actually tell those stories and they might seem boring to you because they're familiar, but I think they're some of the most important ones not just because in a large part you are one of the few experts if you're in a town of a hundred and you really know it and you really live there you're you're one of a hundred people on earth who can talk to that as opposed to being one of i don't know maybe seven eight million scientists or engineers or something like that but also your home is something that i think future generations are going to look to and it's so easy to think of like it's all just about us it's changing right now this stuff is going to go on and hopefully the world doesn't end in the next 30 years, but these things will go on and being able to tell a story be able to capture a moment could be this incredible opportunity and way to kind of look back for maybe your kids or your grandkids or 
you know, some other connection down there. You can you can be the one trying to chase down your grandmother's sketches, or you can be the one making them. And and I think in both cases, it's a really important thing that goes under the radar so much because it's not the most pressing giant global thing. But I think real change does happen in our backyards. And do you feel that, um, I guess, filmmaking in particular, but all forms of art, do you think it's it's well, it's definitely different? But the question was going to be, do you think it's better in terms of presenting the truth? You know, when we talk about science, it's hard to comprehend. It's hard to sometimes it's you question the science. I mean, that's what science is. It's about challenging it all the time. But when you're using real live imagery, whether it's sketched or, or filmmaking and so on, do you think that helps convey the message clearer? I mean, it really comes down to the, the, the producer, the filmmaker, the writer, the artist, and so on in terms of how you do that. But can that actually help? You know, it's COP28 right now as we're recording this. So, you know, spoiler alert, we're, we're recording this a bit early. But, you know, there's a lot of people still challenging the science. And there's still a lot of people going back on policies. We've just had a government change in New Zealand and they're undoing a lot of you know, policies. So do you think filmmaking, art, sketching, paintings, photography, and so on, is really important in getting those messages across? Oh my gosh, it's crucial. Yeah, I think, I think art, filmmaking, photography, I think that's like the, the flavor packet in the ramen, you know, like without that, that's not a, that's not a tasty meal at all. I mean, frankly, ramen isn't a meal at all either, I suppose. It's more of a snack. But, you know, in, it's got no flavor without the art. And I think that film and photography is hugely subjective. So, for instance, film itself is basically a lie. Um, as a filmmaker, I can say this. There's so many reality TV shows here in Alaska that are just so fake. Um, I think there's quite a few in New Zealand as well. You know, somebody comes in from out of country and they're like, we're going to tell the story. And it's not it's not at all what's going on but you can make it feel as as realistic as you want but i think there is a truth in art that you cannot find anywhere else numbers are just they're cold they're hard they can be true they can be i guess skewed as well and policy and facts and and feelings but art is one of those kind of enduring things that make us people and and i think that that a lot of the answers will be sparked by it Maybe, maybe, you know, the solutions won't be found necessarily. We do need the engineers, for sure, as far as this kind of stuff goes and, and the scientists. But I think art can oftentimes be the spark that at least gets that bonfire going that actually makes those big changes. And, um, and it can happen in just the strangest places. When I was young, I just always thought I needed to go travel to the rainforest somewhere or, you know, the savannah to actually make a good story. But they really are just... You know, it's just right under your feet sometimes, and it's it's so funny how how much it took to to figure that out. Uh, it really took traveling around the whole world to to realize that that there is no place like home. But I do think that's often where the solutions are as well, and uh, and I just assume it'll take another thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years to to really let that sink in. I'm sure for myself, but uh, yeah, it's. It's been a really wild thing to see the impact something as little as a painting or photo can have. Um, and it doesn't have to change the world. It just has to change one person's perspective and then they can they can just be that, that little bit of tinder that your spark landed on and boom. Now, before we kind of dive into your projects at home, 
um, I just want to pivot just a very tiny amount. Um, you're also a trail runner and trail running and art, especially the landscape artwork you do, that if, if you think about it, they go really nicely together um, because they're both activities that allows a person to spend a lengthy amount of time out in nature soaking up the surroundings. Um, but what I'm really interested to know is what goes in your kit because, you know, the typical runner is concerned with fuel and fluids, but are you out there lugging around your paint supplies as well or do you try and keep your running experiences and your art a little bit separate? Oh, I can't, I can't not go without a paintbrush. Does it come out of the backpack? Rarely. But is it there? Always. Because it's, uh, you know, you never know when you're going to get that one moment. And I, I never regret bringing a paintbrush. Maybe, maybe I wish that I had a slightly less heavy pack, but I, I never, uh, I've often regretted not having one. And so my general kit is I've got like a little tiny palette. It's, um, there's a brand here called Art Toolkit. They make these great little tiny travel palettes. Um, I've got a water brush, which is sort of a, it's a plastic brush with sort of a cavity in the middle and you squeeze it and water comes out. So if you just have that, you can still make a painting. It's not the most efficient thing, but it works really well. And then a sketchbook. And then of course, like one or two pens and then some brushes and clips and all that that jazz. But for the most part, it's just those three ingredients. You just need a, a water brush, a little bit of a palette, or just a colored pencil. Watercolor pencil works great. And then uh, and then some paper. But it's it's kind of this excuse just to sit there and slow down, which I've kind of needed in my life because whether it's filming trail runners or races or just the fast-paced zipping of the world, this excuse to just sit down and stare at a plant or a mountain is sort of this magical superpower. And all it costs is a sketchbook. And uh, and you can just kind of change your whole perspective of like, all right, it's totally acceptable for me just to look at this bumblebee for two hours. Whereas if you just did that on your own, um, they'd take you away because that's not a normal thing. But if you put a sketchbook in your hand, it's acceptable. And I think kids know this. They'll, they'll do that stuff anyway. They also love painting, but it just kind of, it's like this little life hack. Just Just put a sketchbook in your pocket. It can unlock some doors you never knew were there and uh and it's they make pretty small sketchbooks too so it's never that much of a hassle well i'm happy to sacrifice two cliff bars bars in my pack to make room for that i cannot draw but i'll take your point it gives me a good excuse to sit down and just stare into oblivion as i'm quietly um questioning my life choices as i'm out out on the trails <laughs> all day <laughs> That's the other thing you can do too, is it slows you right down. I mean, I've got to say there's, I, I've filmed with, you know, Killian Journet and, uh, and Emily and like, frankly, any of these runners, Dakota, they're so, so fast. And the, the photography mm. especially is great when, uh, you know, you're kind of huffing and puffing and need a bit of a break and you're like, Hey, I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to need to do some laps. So I get this shot, you know, of you going back and forth. <laughs> is it yeah. for the art? Maybe. Is it to slow them down? Also maybe. And, uh, and sketching is, Oh boy watercolors work even better because you say oh you go ahead i'm just gonna sit here for 45 minutes and make a picture of a flower um it's it's just the ultimate it's just the ultimate life hack i, I can't believe nobody knows this but I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to give up the secret it can be used for anything <laughs> well actually you've you've led down the perfect path because as we get into talking about some you know the amazing work that that you've done your relationship with a lot of the world's top ultra trail runners you know if you've men mentioned Killian Journey, which which does feature in one of the films that you you've um sort of been involved with a little bit Dakota you've been involved with and and so many other amazing runners how have you created those relationships and and how important 
has it been to have those relationships to tell a unique side of the story? It's funny. It's uh, I mean, it just happens. It feels like so randomly, but the world is so small. I mean, New Zealand and Alaska, I think, are probably the same in this, where it feels like there's one degree of separation between everybody. Like in Alaska, you can't, if you meet somebody else from Alaska, you can't really move on with the conversation until you figure out how you know each other. You know, you get talking and, and then you figure out that you went to prom with their sister's like best friend. And then once you have, once you realize how you know each other, you can move on and, and kind of keep yeah, on going. Yeah. But um, trail running is sort of the same. It's this tiny little bubble and it just seems like, uh, you know, eventually you run into each other. But Killian in particular and Emily have just been so wonderful. They they just started a new brand called Normal, which is really cool. It's it's kind of like the Patagonia of shoes. Um, they they really kind of are pushing the envelope on what sustainability and performance looks like. But also they are just they they are so genuine. They they very much deeply care. And um, and I feel like when you're kind of moving in the same directions, you just sort of line up with with folks like that. So even though I didn't realize how fancy they were, I met them here in Alaska first when they came up for this big race called Mount Marathon. I had no idea, you know, just the speed. I don't watch too many videos on YouTube and things. And after I meet people, people usually tell me their accolades. But um, yeah, it's it all kind of gets down to knowing a person. If you want to tell a story, if you want to make a change, if you want to really do something, it doesn't start with those huge, giant, big picture films and, you know, ideas. It kind of starts with these really personal interactions, which can be as simple as just going on a trail run together. And um, that's where all the big ideas have come from. But also what have really driven the big ideas and the stories and the sketches and the films is everybody can kind of relate to, you know, the smell of fresh, fresh vegetation as you're kind of moving through uh, a trail or, um you know what it feels like when you come out to a really good view and it's just variations of all of that and so are kind of the solutions so it's been really cool to be able to to work with a lot of these trail runners but also just kind of get to know them as people because that's that's like the best part you know it's the the film is a good excuse or the the project is a good excuse to go somewhere and and uh, be able to share something but it's those interactions in between that really kind of i think are the glue that stick us together so, so speaking of which, talk to us about Katmai, um, because when you look at pictures of this area, it's beautiful and it's wild and it's remote. And, you know, most of the photos show what appears to be a pretty pristine environment. It's not exactly a highly populated area either, but because of ocean currents, the world's problems still come knocking, don't they? Perfectly said. I should I should steal that for one of the, the trailer uh, <laughs> descriptions. But basically, Katmai is this coast off in Alaska, um, and I should just start by saying like Alaska is enormous. It is it is such a big place with less than a million people. Um, in fact, almost half the population is in the city I live in Anchorage. And it is just, it is so huge that if you cut Alaska in half, it would be the first and second biggest state. And if the tide was out and you cut it into thirds, it would be the first, second and third biggest state. So when people talk about how big Texas is, They've got nothing on Alaska. This is this is a close to continent-sized place. And one of these amazing, huge, giant remote places is Katmai, which is a little bit like Jurassic Park, but with bears. I mean, it is just these pristine cliffs and this, like, these just massive, massive volcanic um, features. There's a big pyroclastic blast. I think it's pyroclastic. It was a huge, huge explosion um, in like the early 1900s. So parts of it look like the moon. It is just 
is wild, but Alaska is so huge. I didn't really hear about this place until I lived there for you know almost 10 years. And so eventually I was able to go out there to uh, do a little bit of filming and art and also help with some of the marine debris that washes up. Because even though this place is rarely frequented by um, you know, anything, anything on two legs, aside from a bear standing up, uh, the amount of trash that washes up from all of the world is enormous because of these currents. And I kind of heard about this before I went, but just nothing could prepare me when you get to those beaches. And it is just such a, it, it's like being in a hot tub in you know, in a frigid winter. And on one hand you have just the, like the contrast is unbelievable. You have this absolutely pristine wilderness and then, and then you have more water bottles than you would see at a dump. And uh, there's fishing line, but there's also just uh, shopping crates and um, all this really familiar stuff, hat brims, and then shoes, tons and tons and tons of shoes, which are the most familiar thing to me. And it just, there's just something, something kind of disconnected out there. It just didn't make sense. And when that usually happens, it's time to either uh, ask somebody who knows what's going on or pull out a sketchbook and just sort of look a lot more. And after a whole lot of that, we come up with a film and, and I'm just kind of stuck in the issue. And we'll probably, probably keep on working out in Katmai and, and try to, to understand those areas and be able to share what's going on for, you know, the next five decades, if I'm lucky. But uh, it's just the strangest thing you've ever seen. Just to give an appreciation of its remoteness, in Alaska already in most people's minds is remote and as far as Anchorage goes but to travel from Anchorage how long and and what modes of transport did you take to get to Katmai yeah and people often say that Anchorage is 20 minutes from Alaska I mean we've got like movie theaters we've got a couple movie theaters and you know grocery stores but then routinely you do have moose walking downtown or if you're if you're just 20 minutes from town and you get lost you could end up going in the wrong direction and not see any human for a couple thousand miles um so it's you're kind of plunked right in the middle of some pretty hardcore wilderness but katmai is sort of the step above so you have uh, to get there from Anchorage, you can either take a plane to Kodiak or a ferry. Um, ferry takes about a day, the plane just about under an hour. And then in Kodiak, we got on a boat, uh, this research vessel that also does bear viewing. And then we headed across something called the Shelikoff Strait, which is, it's like a tiny Drake passage, if you know anything about going to Antarctica. But it is a, it is a miserable piece of water, I got to say, and no love for the Shelikoff. I've been across several times now for these for these expeditions. I have not made it across without losing at least my lunch, dinner, if not both. And uh, once we actually got across this passage, absolutely just terrible. We we have a giant dinner because everybody's already lost theirs. And then there was a call over the radio that there's a mining dredge that was sinking towards the other side, and we were the closest vessel. So we end up going back across the Shelikoff. Everybody, including the captain, was throwing up. This is bad weather. Rescued the mining vehicle, towed them to safety, and then headed back across to go pick up this plastic. So it's it's a pretty intense piece of business. But when you wake up in the morning, because usually it's you're going into night or out of night, when you wake up in the morning, you are just like in a whole different world. It really, it's just the Jurassic Park music starts playing. You just walk up and... There's huge animals just sort of wandering around on shore. And it is it is an entirely different world out there. 
um, because it's just, yeah, the world hasn't really caught up except from this one way, which is the trash that just is washing up every single wave, every single winter storm, um, and just sort of slowly starting to infect this really, really wild spot. So what a lot of us have seen is the film No Lost Shoes that I think you released 2023, I think is when, when it was released, when it came out. I, I, or, or I just had a one-year-old, so that could have been one year ago. It could have been five years ago. Time is an <laughs> absolutely broken clock in my head right now. <laughs> but now what you have or still are working on is Footprints on Katmai, which will be released, I believe, in spring or spring Northern Hemisphere, so our autumn here in the Southern Hemisphere, 2024. So is No Lost Shoes kind of the prequel? Is it a teaser? Is it two completely different films? Is there a link between the two? Yeah. Uh, in So in Katmai, we, we captured a bunch of footage. We really focused on the shoes. Um, they are just, for some reason, so relatable. And they're also this really, really wild conundrum because they are so hard to recycle. So in a lot of ways, these shoes, which are 24 billion, will be created this year. 24 billion pairs, I think, of shoes. But very, very, very few of them can be recycled in a way that, that some other textiles or things could be. And they're all made out of clues and laminates and all kinds of confusing stuff. And a lot of them won't last very long at all. Um, it's good business to be able to sell a pair of shoes that will disintegrate in you know a little while and have somebody need a new pair. So it's this very relatable thing. And the craziest thing is you know that a person's foot has been in almost all of these. Sometimes a container will spill and you'll find like uh, there's like a certain Nike shoe that was really easy to find all across the world because a big container of them spilled. But the vast majority of these, somebody's foot was in there. And it's just the wildest thing to think that somewhere out there in Malaysia or Tanzania or um, Seattle, there's a person walking around and they would have no idea where their shoe ended up just in this place that is just absolutely beyond time and like barely feels real. Uh, but because the ocean currents and everything, that's where it's going to end up and that's where it's going to do some damage. So the idea was to do uh, a short film with normal and then a longer film kind of about the big picture. But with any of these subjects, it turns out that it's like, it's like pulling a, a rope out of one of these log jams. You think it's going to be this easy thing and you start pulling and you realize that this rope is tangled around all of these logs that are just buried by sand. Probably a weird analogy unless you were there, but it's, it is a tangled mess. So with normal, the short video actually turned into a long video, which they used to create this, uh, this shoe recycling program, which is really cool. But then it just sort of bounced around in my head for a long time, trying to like figure out a way to share these bigger pictures because of some of the wild stuff I was learning while I was out there. So the longer video ended up coming together thanks to um, the sketchbook company, Hana Mule, uh, Keen stepped in and then Protect Our Winters, um, uh, which, is, which is an organization here focusing on climate because it turns out that a lot of these plastics actually have a ton to do with climate. And some of what we were learning is absolutely just it's just wild. And, and that's why, that's why I created a film. I'm, I'm struggling being able to explain it right now. Um, and that's the beauty of a film is it just, you can understand stuff in a way that it's not, it's not that depressing stuff you want to click through. You got some art in there and then it's, uh, it's, it's wild. Sometimes you just have to see something to really understand it. But a lot of what we are learning about the big picture and the climate side just felt too important to squeeze into something small. So this longer version 
kind of tries to share some of those really, really wild um, things that we learned on the shore and while picking up those shoes and all the other thousands of, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, kilograms of plastic that, that have washed up there. Ben and I were very lucky to be able to have a little bit of a sneak peek of, of one of the cuts that you've got so far. And it is very powerful, but can I just say it's surprisingly educational as well. You managed to sneak in a lot of the facts and the figures, but it doesn't feel like you're being lectured to. So you get that balance really, really nicely, I think, for the audience. Oh, I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, learning stuff is pretty cool. For instance, do you know how much oxygen is produced by all of the land plants on earth. Every tree, every rainforest, every blade of grass and every savanna is somewhere between 20 and 30%, which is just bonkers, you know? Like I always thought like the rainforest produced like 70% of the oxygen on earth, but no, it's like 20 or 30%. And most of the oxygen is produced by these little tiny phytoplankton, the little tiny like invisible plants. And then uh, the rest of it is kind of seaweed and sort of larger plants. So, um, yeah, being able to kind of try to find a visual way to share that has been such a such a challenge, but so fun because with a sketchbook and a really beautiful landscape, that doesn't hurt at all. And some good footage, you can really kind of capture this cool moment. Um, and it's it's kind of scary when you think about how much oxygen these little plants produce. And then the fact that in a lot of places, they're outnumbered by microplastics. Um, they are, they are, sort of this really important carbon sink and nobody's really talking about planting more, you know, phytoplankton, planting more trees, sure, save the rainforest, sure, but nobody's talking about what about the seaweed and what about the phytoplankton and if you lose those, yeah, there's 70% of your oxygen, which is, that's going to be a concern and a whole bunch of carbon. So um, it's it's finding fun and cool kind of creative ways to be able to share more about that because that's sort of how I learn. Um, is, is just trying to understand these things with a sketchbook in hand. And the only difference is we brought a camera along this time. But it's really one of those things where you leave with so many more questions than you came with. I was just wondering what's up with these shoes. And then the film itself is like, oh my gosh, what's this invisible mass in the water that just basically sustains life as we know it and the big picture and what do whales have to do with any of this and how will microplastics affect my kids? and it's just this whole slippery slope. But uh, in the process, you're learning all of these kind of wild things about our world and and uh, and some little solutions because this film is not the the answer of what to do. It's more of hopefully that spark that will get ideas to other people who might have those solutions or those answers because it's a, it's a global problem and, and you can't fix it in Alaska. You have to fix it all over the world before it'll stop coming here. Well, it's exactly what you said. It's about inspiring change. You don't want your film work and and so on to be another doom and gloom you know as you said you want to leave that to the science papers to be all the depressing <laughs> stuff but but you know talking about inspiring change and so on it's it's about changing our behaviors as human beings on this planet no matter where, where we are and this film does have a specific focus on the shoes we wear and what we do with them once we're done wearing them and also perhaps even before that how we choose the decisions we make on the type of shoes we buy. You know, and you've mentioned Killian's brand, um, uh, Normal, trying to change sort of the, 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 the thinking of how, how we purchase and how we use shoes. But what do you, if you've learned something, and we don't want to give too much away because we want people to watch these films and, and be inspired directly by, by your amazing work. But 
If you were to share one important lesson that you have learned yourself through this journey, what would you say would be an important behavioral change that we should undertake to start making a, a, a positive change? Boy, just one change. Okay, give us five. I mean... Five changes, here we go. Okay, let's just raise it to 10. Just how much time you got. Well, actually, I think in a lot of ways, um, some of the biggest some of the biggest things is just to know that that we're not going to get it right. You know, there's no there's no climate saint out there. There's no perfect way to live and really nail it down. So, for instance, on the shoe front, I mean, there are shoes being made out of recycled material, and um, and Keen, who, who's another brand who does some great work, they they removed all the forever chemicals from their shoes, all the PFAS is out of their shoes, which that's that's like the main huge problem. Microplastics basically are little sponges for this, you know, chemicals and stuff, and that's the chemicals are what are going to get us, but. Um, but yeah, it's it's being able to move forward and know that you're not going to get every single step right. There's going to be a ton of stumbles along the way, but that if you're moving in the right direction, you're you're going to do all right. Um, and that there's always something something new and different that could be tried and done. But there's no there's no way to get it perfect. So I think that was really important because every time you hear about one of these huge problems, like I just wrapped my head around climate change, sort of. And then all of a sudden I'm learning all about microplastics and the fact that actually the rainforests aren't the thing that like, you know, save the world anyway. It's like this underwater ecosystem and um, and just how important all of this is. But but you don't have to kind of switch gears. You can still move forward in that way. And, um, you know, if you want to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, it doesn't just mean like something like austerity. It doesn't just mean flying less or, you know, driving a smaller car or doing all of that, which, which is very important, but protecting a ecosystem like phytoplankton, like the ocean or rainforest or savannas, protecting that ecosystem does the same thing. Cause that is, that is pulling, that is pulling that carbon out of the atmosphere. And if it's removed, then it will stop doing that. So it kind of works toward the same, the same goal. And I think if I can leave anybody with anything, it's that there's no correct path. There's no one exact footsteps to follow in um it's more of a north star that that we can all go toward and there's there's a billion there's what eight billion people there's eight billion eight and a half billion what are we looking at here what's the population or yeah. what will be in a month almost nine billion there's <laughs> there's like a there's not just you know one way there's there's nine billion ways or so and um mm. and i think that that can be pretty heartening so with the upcoming release of footprints on Katmai, what's What's your hope with this film? Because this will be longer than all these little ones that we've seen. Is it going to be a full feature length film? What's the platform you're hoping to to put this film out on? What's your goal? Yeah, with Keen um, and and Normal and, and uh, Hannah Mule and all these companies kind of behind it, I think that being able to um, share the film uh, through film festivals and a lot of these other smaller ways is going to be really effective. So I'm really excited about that. And just, you know, being able to kind of share it within a community. I mean, if I have any dream with a film like this, it's that I could be the spark for at least one person, you know, wherever they are, maybe it's in New Zealand, maybe it's in Texas, maybe it's in uh, Tanzania. But if this film can get out there and one person can see it and be inspired to, find some solutions to some of these big problems in their own home, then I think it's a massive success because that's, 
that's kind of the little changes that make up the big picture, pun intended. But uh, when you see it in Alaska, when you see all these shoes coming from all over the world, it is this absolutely depressing moment because you you see how big of an issue it is. It's like knowing that your boat doesn't just have one leak. It's got, you know, thousands and they're they're it's just coming in from everywhere but in the same breath that means the solutions can come from everywhere as well so we found things from new zealand we found things um from from the philippines from all over the world and uh the solution to the, either it's ocean plastics or um, or just kind of overconsumption or a lot of the, you know the climate issues is this really really global local work that that will actually make it make it happen and so if this film can light that spark for anybody then then it's been a huge success and so the next step for me is going to be just figuring out how to be able to share that and uh, and connect connect that story from here in Alaska all the way to the rest of the world and uh and that's the hard part it's like climbing a mountain you get to the top of the mountain you're like i'm done but actually you're halfway there because you know the whole the whole next half is going down and and is just as treacherous and now you're tired and things are brutal but um that's kind of where it's at with the film as you finish it and and you're just halfway there but the next half is the impactful half where where those sparks can get lit so to finish off, I've got a little quote here from Killian, and it might have come off your film, actually, one of your films, but it's, we all leave footprints, make yours temporary. In terms of any of our listeners that are, it's definitely not me, but that are budding artists, filmmakers with a little camera or, or like to sketch and so on, how would you encourage them to, to step up? You know, we all need someone to do their bit in our community for our planet and communicating via through art in, in any form of that manner is an important asset to have. How can one actually do it? You know, where, where do they start? They have the skill. How do they actually start? Oh, I mean, it's a boring answer. I don't know if you want it, but um, it, it you start at home, you know, if you really really want to make a change you start at home and it's boring it's really boring it's familiar it's easy stuff you don't have to travel to a bear infested island uh off the coast of alaska you start in your backyard you just throw a sketchbook or a flute or whatever your art form is um you know a dj set it it's not yeah whatever your art is there's zero limits you toss it in your pocket and you bring it with you always and you just look at the world through that lens and you just keep on doing it and you keep on doing it and you follow that curiosity and it's going to lead you to a little community maybe it's trail running maybe it's you know surfing enthusiasts maybe it's uh oboe players who knows and that little community kind of works its way bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you end up making uh stories or solutions that could affect people all over the world because because the world is made up of these tiny communities hundreds and millions of them all over the place just like phytoplankton these little tiny plants that make oxygen and take in carbon dioxide but if you have enough of them then you can create all the oxygen on earth and just change the whole planet and it's the same way with action you know you don't need to you don't need to be the big fish to make the big 
the big change. You just need to be one of a ton of little fish. But uh, right now, it feels like we don't have nearly enough of those little fish making those changes. But uh, but everyone matters, you know. And and it starts. Oh my gosh! I like. I wish there's a solution that I could just be like, well, it's this one exciting trick, you know. You just follow this five step plan or take one of my courses or something. It's like no, no, no. You know what you need to do, and um, and it's boring, but you just keep on doing it. And you keep on doing it and you keep that north star in mind of where you're going and what you need and uh and then step by step literally and and figuratively you'll end up exactly where you need to be and uh and it can just take you to the the funniest places like a bear infested beach on the coast of alaska um or somewhere even wilder well, for those that are interested in sketching and want to learn, you do offer some online courses. So we will absolutely link your website in our show notes and, and people will be able to t- check that out. Max, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's a wonderful way to start a new season, a new year, full of inspiration, full of amazing storytelling. We will put some links to some of the, the, the shorter films that you have made. It's It's so inspiring. You tell a lot more stories in those as well. It's so important we've said it so many times and so many scientists academics researchers that we talk to acknowledge the importance of art in communicating science so we'll say on behalf of all of us thank you for being one of those amazing people that communicate things so eloquently and 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 well to 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 our communities to inspire us to take action Uh, and we certainly look forward to the release of footprints on katmai later this year and uh, we'll certainly promote it from our end once it is out. And uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks a bunch. And and I, I can't wait to, to head to your hemisphere soon. My grandmother helped light that spark for me, gosh, 30, 40 years ago when she started painting all of this stuff. And uh, there's whole sketchbooks full of New Zealand. So I can't wait to come track down some of those sketches and see if I can find exactly where she stood all those decades ago. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. 